You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Good morning Father. Good morning. So today we wanted to talk about the Shemites. I always found this interesting because there were these Western Europeans traveling around the Near East in the 19th century, classifying and telling everybody who they were and what they were. And they decided to line up these people belong to these people in the Bible and these other people belong to these other people in the Bible. They took their anthropology and sociology and their cultural views and they decided, okay, how does this match up with the Bible? But the Bible itself tells us who the Shemites are, and they're a very important part of the biblical story, regardless of what the German archaeologists or anthropologists were seeing when they were walking around, or at least thought they were seeing when they were walking around. Yes, yes. Reality is in the text itself. The people try to figure out whether James Bond is Ian Fleming or Ian Fleming James Bond. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. James Bond is the James Bond of the stories, period. Now, when you go back to the Bible, you have something more. Because, as I keep repeating time and again, in Semitic languages, we do not have proper nouns. All nouns have meanings, and they are thrown on a person. And this applies to the other languages also, but not as forcefully as Semitic languages. For instance, Paulus means the small one. That's what Paul is. One cannot dismiss that. The connection between Peter, Petros, and Petra, the rock. I mean, everybody knows about that. But these are very visible or immediately heard and understood. But when you move to words that are not known to readers, then things are different. Let me jump immediately to a very, very stunning name in the Toledot of Shem in chapter 11. And I discuss this in detail, both in my book on Genesis and in my book, The Rise of Scripture. So I don't need to spend too much time on that, but it's important to mention it. Take the name Reu, however you present it in Genesis 11:18. Well, Reu is a name. That's fine. But for someone who knows Hebrew and hears it in the original, this Reu is the imperative plural of the verb ra'a, which means to shepherd when it applies to the shepherd or to graze when it applies to the sheep. That is extremely powerful, especially in view of the fact that the main reference of the authors in the Bible is shepherdism, shepherd life. That is very important. Take another name, Eber. People know that because they have been introduced to it, the Hebrew, Eber, to pass. And then, you know, scholars try to figure out whether they are the same as the Hapiru and so on. It doesn't matter. What matters is how the author is using that. Abram is introduced in 4.13, Ha'ibri, the Hebrew, the one who crosses 
through, which is again reflecting shepherdism. This is how I want to approach Shem, to say that the Semites, yes, because the author, I said time and again, is an erudite person. The authors knew what was going on, but the way they use a word, as I mentioned earlier, Paul and Peter and Ananias and so on, that is the heart of the message. Now, when you get to Shem, and ultimately, and I'll get to that by skirting it at the end, we may want to spend another podcast, that Shem means name, and it is applied slowly on on God, who has the name. And at the end of Isaiah, he's going to give a name to his people. Why is it important? Because name, not only in Semitic languages, but also in our languages, it means also fame, to be known. So that is immediately present to the mind of a hearer who knows the original. Or if the hearer is not aware, then another hearer knowledgeable can bring it more swiftly to the ear and the mind of someone who knows the original language. Like people may not know that Paulus means the small one, but if someone knows Latin and I mention that and they say, ah, okay, I got it now. Now, in the case of Shem, in conjunction with his children, because the topic today is specifically the Shemites, the children of Shem. That becomes very important. Let's go back. In the Toledot of Noah, suddenly we don't have that he had a son and then many other sons and daughters like his predecessors, but he had three sons together. And that is important because the author wants to stress that the interest of God is in all the human beings put together in spite of their genealogical differences. But then when the story continues, the two others disappear and we have the Toledot of Shem. Let's go back. You have the Toledot of Adam the Toledot of Noah, and then the Toledot of the three sons together in chapter 10, but then in the middle of chapter 11, after the story of the Tower of Babel and the spreading of all nations, suddenly you have a concentration on one of these three sons, which is Shem, from whom at the end comes Terah, the father of Abram, the Hebrew And in a while, I'll connect Shem with Abram, because in both cases, we have a reference to the blessing and the curse, which is a late motif in the scriptural story throughout the law and later and until the end. Now, these Shemites, as I mentioned earlier, are presented very clearly through their names, Shela, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Serug, Nahor. And I discuss this in detail in my audio and in my book, The Rise of Scripture. All these names reflect clearly shepherd life, shepherdism, which means that the author is trying to tell us that the blessing continues through one of the three, Notice earlier, the son of Ham is cursed, and Japheth enters under the blessing of Shem with reference to the tent. 
in chapter 9, Noah, and I discuss all these things in detail in my book and in my audio. And my take on it is that, again, these three names are names that have meaning and thus uh, function. Shem, one more time, is the name and the fame. Ham is the ire of God and thus the punishment. We can see the curse through Canaan. And Japheth is the one who opens up, who spreads and refers very clearly in chapter 10 to the people of the islands and thus the Greeks, the Macedonians, Alexander and so on. And these will get the blessing by entering the tents of Shem. And now you could hear it. You have a quick jump. Like people tell me Old Testament, New Testament. They were written very close in time. And this is how the Jew Paul, the Hebrew, not just Jew, Hebrew Paul, spreads the blessing of Shem to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks and to the Romans. People very often say, Father Paul, you start expanding and expanding. We asked you a simple question. Just tell us about the Shemites. But this is not how things work in literature, especially if the text itself weaves all the stories along light motifs and Shem. Besides Adam, obviously Adam, which is the human being. But Shem is a powerful leitmotif. So the Shemites of the Bible are not the Semites of human history and the geography. They may refer to them because they are from the same area. It's like when you take the name Eber, Hebrew, to cross, and so that's a common name. But it is how the author is handling the name Shem and the name Shemites. How do I know that? It's because when you read chapter 10, you will immediately notice, and I point this out in my writings, that some of the areas of Ham and the areas of Shem overlap One is at the same time here and there, which brought me to the conclusion that it's a play on words, on names. On the one hand, Japheth is all the way from the Isles, very clear, the Greeks. The other two are overlapping. And thus, in the area of the biblical story, you have people living there. And it is through their choice of comportment that they end up either under the ham, the hotness, the ire of God, or under his name, and thus they will get a name and they will be famous. That is the play. Whereas the outsider, should he end up under the blessing, it is always by going under the tent of Shem. And that's the play against Alexander and at the same time for him, inviting him to understand now that he decided to choose Babylon, the Semite, the Shemite, as his capital. It's up to him to be sucked into the blessing through Shem or under the curse. And this is the message clearly of the Bible. And here, let me jump back to chapter 6 and chapter 11 in chapter 6 and that is present only in the original because someone who doesn't know the original is going to hear name at one point 
and shame at the other point. It's practically impossible for that person to connect these two. But in the original, they are not only connected, but it is the same word we hear in chapter 6 that the great men, the Nephilim, were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children, sons of God powerful. These were the mighty men that were of old, the men of renown. Not even the word name is heard here, but in the original it is Anshe Hashem, men of name, men of renown. But notice that these people wanted to usurp the name. How do I know that? It is from chapter 11, when we hear the people saying to one another, then they said, 11.4, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The trick here is that God will disperse them and thus scatter them, in order to give them at the end a name corresponding to his name. So already in 6.11, we have the beginning and the end of the story for an attentive hearer. But then how do you know that it's the end of the story? Then you have to wait and hear the entire story. And that's what we don't want to do, to hear again and again in the original, the story. And I say this to stress to the leaders of Christian congregation, first of all, they have to learn Hebrew, number one, and teach the others. Teach the texts mean just tell them what the original words mean. You cannot teach the text. It's very obvious. So we have a powerful play in all these chapters regarding how does one, if you don't like the word, become a Shemite. Let me put it in another way. What is a Shemite? The one who ultimately accepts the name, which is a gift of God, you cannot give it to yourself. Remember again, chapter 6 and in chapter 11, the human beings wanted to grant to themselves a fame, a notoriety, a renown. But that's not what the Bible is talking about. And the funny thing is that you are given this to the extent to which you are a shepherd. Remember, Abram, the Hebrew, the one who crosses. And in this chapter 14 and the earlier one, he is spoken to as a shepherd. I mean, no one talks like this except a shepherd. I'm going to grant you all the ground that you can see looking north, south, east, and west. <laughs> I mean, how far can you see? And then slowly on, we hear that the kingdom of David and Solomon stretched to the Euphrates. I mean, you can't see from Palestine the Euphrates. It's an impossibility. But a shepherd understands that because the shepherd keeps moving. Ha'ibri, the one who crosses. Remember, in the Hebrew, abar means to cross over something, but more importantly, because that's the original meaning, cross through, to pass, not to cross over. 
That's the secondary meaning, but it is to pass. All those who know Arabic know that. And a Shemite, slowly on, one discovers that it is the Abarim, those who pass and are not connected to a specific spot. I'm not saying area. Obviously, you're connected to an area, but not a spot. And the Bible is anti-human in the sense that the early empires were known by the name of the capital city. Babylonian Empire, Assyrian Empire, Roman Empire. It's like today, the USA would be the Washingtonian Empire. Notice in the story of the Slavs, how at the beginning the capital was Kiev, but then when it became Moscow, then suddenly it is Moscow that is the ref- In the Bible, the city is never a reference. All cities are destroyed until we await the city that comes down from heaven, which is obviously a hyperbole taken from the end of the book of Ezekiel, where the city's name is the Lord is there, which is very funny. To put a twist to that, uh, the Lord is there in the Hebrew is Shamma, which is there, because Sham means there. Now, it's impossible for someone who's hearing the original not to connect Sham and Shem. It's practically impossible. (laughs) It is where the noun is said, heard, spread. And let me make another jump to my namesake, Paul. That's why he refers to his preaching as wherever the name of Jesus has not been heard and thus uttered. You do not bring an idol with you. You do not bring on your cell phone a picture of the temple. You just say the name, which is ultimately the name of God. I mean, I could go here. I discussed it in detail in my book, where ultimately you are a Shemite to the extent to which you are connected to the name of God. And you wait until his name is said upon you. And that is so obvious in that very well-known text in the law in Leviticus, where God is referred to as Hashem, the name. Very important. You may not desecrate, blaspheme the name. Okay, and how can you name something that is not there as an idol would be? So that's why ultimately you end up with the name that is used in the Bible. Okay, to go and spend your time debating with the witnesses of Jehovah, whether his name was Jehovah or not Jehovah. I disagree with both the Christians and the witnesses of Jehovah that ultimately the more important name is Elohim. And I talk in my book in detail about that, that Elohim is not to be equated with Yahweh and Yahweh not to be equated with Elohim the way one may not equate Jerusalem with Zion. Each one has its function, and that's very important to remember. Now, let me go back to Shem. In this case, it's very clear that besides Japheth, who is an outsider and enter either under the cities of Ham or the tents of Shem, but the real issue is in the Syrian wilderness and the surroundings where you have 
Shem and Ham as two ways of living, and thus you cannot separate as though you have the Hamite and the Semite and so on and so forth. It's more functional names. I mean, in Hebrew, Ham means hotness, and it is connected with the Af, the ire of God, the wrath. I mean, it's so clear. And again, I must go back to where I started, Noah at the beginning has three sons. When you have the Toledot of Shem, it is mentioned after the Tower of Babel. But in conjunction with Noah, we have three sons altogether. And thus the purview of the author is the entirety of humanity. Remember, after the flood, there was Noah and his sons and Noah's wife, and more importantly, the wives of the sons. Otherwise, you would not have descendants. And that is obviously a judgment, not only on the Jews who played on Semitic, pro-Semitic, anti-Semitic, that they are the Semites and so on. But it applies also to Arabs like me when you start saying that you are the Semite. Now, if you want to say that you are the Semite, period, I have no problem with that. But when you fall in the trap in which the Jews fell to connect it to the Semites of the Bible, the scriptural Semites, this is not allowed. And you both know that I discussed this in detail in my third part of my book, where I deal with the New Testament, and I say that Yehud, Yehudim, is a tricky word until now. People discuss whether Paul was a Jew, was not a Jew, because in 1 Corinthians he say, I have become a Jew with the Jews and so on. So what are we talking about? The short answer to that is that Paul presented himself as a Hebrew of the sperm of Abraham. That's different than a Jew. Jew means related to the province Yehud. So on purpose, I brought this example at the end. I mean, we don't need to enter in detail in that. It takes its time. I discuss it in my book, perhaps on another podcast. But Jew and Hebrew in Paul, especially when he prefers the word Israelite, he is a Hebrew, he is a Israelite. Remember Jesus saying to Nathanael, you are an Israelite with no guile. So being a member of Israel is not to be equated of being a Jew. Notice, let me jump again. It's important to bring things together. The Jews, very often you hear them saying, as you hear the Christians saying, this person was born a Christian, was born a Jew. I was born a Jew. I was born a Christian. I mean, this is ridiculous. How could you be born a Jew when... The definition of the Jew is linked in the Bible with the circumcision that takes place on the eighth day. <laughs> and how can you say that someone is born a Christian when to be a Christian is linked to the act of baptism? I mean, come on, friends, for heaven's sakes. I have to end here by referring to this calamity that all of us do, even the scholars who are against historicization of the text, now and then fall in this trap of somehow wanting, and that is the greatest blasphemy, to find themselves somewhere in the Bible, the way the followers of Mormon want to connect themselves technically to the biblical story by speaking about 
the tribe that was lost in America and so on. We like to do that, but that is the way of the flesh. And in the Bible, God himself never circumcised a fleshly circumcision. But he does with his own hand, according to the text, circumcise the heart of the people the way he wrote the law with his own finger. These things, friends, are... I know people make fun of me when I speak against Plato and then I use the expression of the essence. (laughs) It is of the essence that we understand all these things together. So I hope I have covered the main aspects by concentrating on the early chapters of Genesis where we encounter precisely Shem and the Shemites because after that they disappear as such as Shemites. But at the same time, we see how this light motif goes through the Bible and end up with Isaiah where you have actually connected with the Shem Yad, the famous Yad Vashem. He will give them power and fame, renown. And this does not happen in the museum that Israel built on a property of the Orthodox Greek Patriarchate, a museum for Yad and Shem and so on. No, because then you are giving the importance. (laughs) The Bible doesn't go by that. All the museums are mausoleums (laughs) that you built. And an earthquake or a hurricane or whatever can destroy them. But that's not the way of the garden that got planted in the Syrian wilderness. You point out that you use Plato's terminology to undermine Plato. (laughs) (laughs) It's very interesting because when an American addressee or a modern addressee, any country, any culture, thinks about the word name and thinks about how a name functions psychologically, They think of identity. I mean, just the example you gave at the end where Israel is building a political identity, a national identity, which puts them in opposition to someone else's identity in a way that descripturalizes the word name. But what's interesting is when we've talked about this in the past, you've pointed out slavery in the Roman Empire, slavery in the Roman household, and how the Christian is the one who pertains to Jesus. They pertain to the name of Jesus. In other words, when you're called a name, it's actually your slavery to your master in the way that you have different masters of the Roman Empire and people called by their name. You are making a very important point that precisely the members, slaves or not, of a household take the name. You know how in the Roman Empire, when you adopt someone, he takes your cognomen, your last name. You become member of the Flavian dynasty. You see what I mean? So this Christianos in Acts by the name of Christ is pointed and intended to remind the person that you do not pertain to your household master. I mean, that's why Paul says in Colossians, when he addresses all the different kinds of members in the family, he ends up with a powerful punch in the face of the Kiri, the masters, and ye masters, remember that you have one master in heaven to whom you have to answer. So it's a very important thing. And that's why earlier, and I thank you for giving me this 
extra opportunity to go back. You cannot link it to the flesh when you say this one was born a Jew and this one was born a Christian. I mean, you're contradicting the data of the text. So <laughs> of the essence means of the essence that is related to the word that comes out of the inexistent scriptural God. You don't have any other reference except the statements. That's why in our tradition, the Orthodox tradition, you have a prayer on the naming of the child. Very interesting. It is as though, although it is the parents that looked into books and so on and discussed with the grandmother, shall we name it after this grandmother or the other grandmother? Ultimately, in the prayer, it is not so. And this is how I get back to my people, the Orthodox, by striking back at them from their own books. You're contradicting yourself when you tell me the story. Let me share with you how we arrived at this name that we chose, you know how the parents speak, for our daughter or son. That is not allowed. But anyway, who am I? There is a famous story from, I believe, the 5th century in the Middle East. A Syrian person was asked, what are you? And the answer, I mean, fantastic story. I'm a Christian and I work as a butcher or a baker to earn my living. Very powerful. What are you? The reaction today is to say, I'm a professor, I'm a priest, I'm a driver, I'm a, no, I'm a Christian. Now again. Is this story factual or not? It does not matter. It's the teaching. So the what, and here I go back to your original comment. I use the essence to dynamite Plato, which means that the essence is precisely functional. There are no essences functional. He could have said, I'm a butcher, simply, or a baker, but this is not how the story goes. Again, my apologies. Sometimes I'm tickled when there are certain words that are used. <laughs> Looking at the children of Shem, we see some famous enemies of the Israelites. Ashur, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Aram, the Arameans, who sometimes are friends and sometimes are enemies. Is it significant that some of these powerful enemies of the Israelites are also the sons of Shem. It is, it is. And in my book, again, I take lengthy pages to show that the interest of these two main prophets, I say main, Elijah and Elisha, because they take over 17 chapters or 19 over the books of Kings. I mean, it's stunning that lengthy stories about them are linked with their dealings with outsiders, widows from the area of southern Lebanon and so on. But more importantly, in the case of Elisha, with his siding with the Aramean general who was fighting against his people. And the story culminates with the leprosy that had hit this general whom Elisha heals, strikes the disciple of Elisha that was not very excited about what Elisha did. It's an unbelievable story. And what tops all that, can you imagine this Aramean? Obviously, is also a Semite. He uses the same. You know? But very interestingly, his name is 
Naaman, which means the man that is touched by the Lord's grace. It is unbelievable that the author spends so many chapters on this story, meaning that there are no enemies. We are all part of these three children of Noah. We are the enemies of God through our comportment and thus become the sons of Ham, of Ayer. Remember, in chapter 6, you have that word, Anshe Hashem, men of the name. So it's our comportment that makes us either men of the Ayer, pertaining to the Ayer, of men pertaining to the name, but again, not the name that we give to ourselves. And that's why I dislike very much when someone say, I'm proud to be a Palestinian. I'm proud to be a Frenchman. I'm proud to be an American. I'm pr- I cannot stand, let alone accept these statements. By speaking like this, you are putting yourself in the line of the sons of God and their progeny, the men of renown of the name. So this overlapping you're touching again is intended beyond what you said, Richard. You will notice the same names of areas or people are found under Ham and under Shem. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Pat, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, and then Sheba, and Dedan. And at the end, under Eber, who is from Shem, you have some of these names repeated. How is that possible? I mean, either you say that the author is stupid, or as scholars like to say, you know, he really slipped, and I don't know why he put this. And then they go to history that at one point this area were under the Hamad. I mean, come on now. The text was written to be heard immediately by the hearer. You don't have to spend 2,000 pages of commentary on Isaiah. I mean, that's not the way to go. It's the way you are struck, impressed by the text. Notice the printing press. You have a press. You imprint something in the mind of the... But again, the imprint has to be in the original. Blessed are those students in my classroom whose name is not to be found in the Bible, because usually we fall in the trap. Take myself, Paul. I mean, people are, oh, you remind me of the Apostle Paul, and so on. Are you kidding me? So if you have a strange name, that's why I like the Finns, okay? They have strange names. Unless they are Christians and Jews, they like to name their children by biblical names and so on. You shouldn't do that. You should keep the original name. And this way, you're nowhere to be found. Otherwise, you will fall flat on your face. And I would like to end with this story when one of my students said to me in the class, he's a priest in the OCA, his name is Caleb, said to me suddenly, you mean that my name means dog? The poor guy, until then he was very happy with his name Caleb, because Caleb is a good guy alongside Joshua. I mean, who wouldn't want to be Caleb? He was shaken. Anyway, it's nice to end up with a holy joke. (laughs) 
that's the way it is, that yes, indeed, you have a clear overlapping specifically between Ham and Shem. That would be, if you like, Janus, the two-faced reality. It's a reality not linked to the genes, but to the comportment. You behave as a Shemite, as a shepherd, or you behave as a city man. And if you behave as a city man, your name, which means possession, Cain, will be totally eliminated from the scriptural Toledots. Totally. That's why Cain is nowhere to be found in Chronicles, where you have the genealogy of the human beings, because they follow the genealogy of Adam in chapter 5. If you read Chronicles, you wouldn't find Cain. That's the way it is. So we have to be very careful, simply not to be proud, period. So the people who hear me should not say, Father Paul said, I shouldn't be proud to be an American or a Palestinian or an Estonian or a Finn. No, one ought not be proud. Pride in Hebrew is ge'ut, which is very bad when it is applied to mountains and temples and human beings, but looks like beauty, majesty, when it is applied to God. Please read Isaiah and the original. Ge'ut. God has donned his ge'ut in Psalm 93. And the Greek is ephprepia, which is majesty. In Arabic, we say jamal, the beauty. But when you apply the same word to someone or something else than God, then it's a catastrophe. And that is precisely the blasphemy. When you don words that look good, only on God. Understanding our relationship to Scripture rather than saying it's about us, understanding how we can conform to its commandment towards us is always of the essence, as you said. So thank you very much for another wonderful episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you both, indeed. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.